Hello, Inside Scoopers. Happy Sunday and welcome to another edition of our live podcast today. And let me tell you, we got a lot of stuff today, man. We got a lot of stuff to talk about. I'm excited about all of these topics because I have had personal experience with all of them. I have too. I didn't think you were going to cut it off that quick. (laughs) You always are very short of word in the first opening like... 10 se- you guys ever notice that if you go back and watch the Facebook lives, you don't have much to say in the opening 10 seconds, but boy, do you got a lot to say? Like, I just won't stop like, talking midway like through. Like 10 minutes in, yeah. Renee asked if we um, intentionally match our backgrounds. No, no. In fact, this is the exact outfit I've been wearing the last three days. <laughs> Jamie says Rodney looks so dressed up. <laughs> it's he, I, you did put on. You, I'm not you, wearing a t-shirt. You have a new t-shirt. Let me tell you. He has a new outfit on. I'm Let me wearing tell you. the exact same clothes. Every. Why not? Every single time. I don't wear a t-shirt. It messes people up. Even even like if I'm out in public at work, doesn't matter where I am. If I'm not wearing a t-shirt, people people are like, "You're very fancy." You're really dressed up this week, fancy. aren't you? So I got a I got a lot of button-up shirts. Yeah, I just do. I just don't wear them. I I always wear like all the t-shirts and the you kind do. of the gifts that people send and things you like do. that. And so it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Now we started off this Facebook Live this week with one of my favorite superfoods in the entire world, kefir. If you're not familiar, the milk slash yogurt liquidy beverage, a new study was just done on it, which is pretty cool, right? In kefir, microbial teamwork makes the dream work, right? There's a lot of companies out there right now that are creating uh, kefir uh, or let's just say fermented liquid products. And they're only using like one or two isolates of the bacteria, or they're trying to remove it and put it in a pill format like kefir pills. Well, this study comes out and says you should not be doing that. Here's what's interesting if, you're, if you've never heard of kefir or the history or the story behind it. The very quick version, according to the researchers here, was in the olden days, people were storing milk in sheepskin. And this would have been up in the Caucasus Mountains, right? And what they found was that when they looked down at the bottom of their stored milk, there was always these clumps that were down there. And some people left the clumps on the bottom and would pour more milk on top. And what they found was these clumps were magically making the milk last longer. So the intent in the olden days wasn't for the health benefits, but they were like, hey man, there's something magical about these grains that if you leave them on the bottom and you pour fresh milk over and over and over, the milk doesn't spoil, right? Now this is this is pretty big because these researchers were saying that that is where all of the magic. It's kind of like, it's kind of like you know those claws you've got to reach in to try and find. It's the kefir clump. So those of you that either make homemade kefir sure. or buy it, a lot of people like don't want to feed this. This is like the really truly the very best part. The clumps are where all They're the party is. Mm-hmm. Carry on. You want to tell the audience what it tastes like? You want to give us amazing. This, if this is not in your toolbox for your repertoire for your dogs and cats, I highly, highly recommend bringing this in. So, according to the researchers, they say that um, when the species work together, feeding on each other's metabolites in kefir culture, they provide something that each other needs. So that clump that you have there is synergistically working, and they're feeding each other, which means. This holds a theory of people that are trying to create like kefir-based type supplements and pills. It might not be the best thing, according to researchers. You might want to be giving it to your pets in a whole real food format. It's particularly fascinating, says the researchers, how the L 
kefir kefirano fascines. Is that how you say kefiro fascines? El kefirano fascines. Yep, fascines. That is correct. I did my best. Kefirofascians. There you go. Kefirofascians. Which dominates the kefir community, uses kefir grains to bind together all of the microbes that is needed to survive. Much like ruling ring of the Lord of the Rings, one grain to bind them all. So for the scientists, they say um, that a lot of people are going out, and I've seen this, a lot of people will go out and just, you know, when you start talking about kefir, when you start talking about bacteria, there's a lot of mix-ups, right? Some people will mix kefir with like fermented goat milk. They think it's the same thing. Some people will mix kefir with yogurt. They think it's the same thing. Some people will use Greek yogurt. They think it's the same thing, right? The problem is because it has a diversity. The researchers say do not confuse it. Kefir's microbial community is far larger than any yogurt, including not just beneficial cultures, but also yeast as well. And that's something that initially, 20 years ago, some of us, including myself as veterinarians, erroneously instructed our clients to not feed yeast to yeasty patients, including kefir. And that is something that I have professionally changed my opinion on, that animals that have yeast issues have a yeast imbalance. They have a yeast overgrowth. Yeast are opportunistic pathogens, both for humans and for dogs. Kitties are far less prone to yeast. We don't know why, but it's something I think we're studying. Dogs and humans, particularly women, are prone to overgrowth of yeast. And 20 years ago, veterinarians, proactive veterinarians, oftentimes said, don't feed any yeast to yeasty animals. And what we know now is that feeding beneficial yeast, like the yeast found in kefir, can actually help maintain and balance a yeasty dog's or human's set of their own opportunistic yeast. So that's something that you don't need to fear feeding yeast to yeasty animals at this point. I don't recommend you feed nutritional yeast to yeasty animals because for a lot of reasons. Um, So I don't, I'm not a fan of dumping nutritional yeast directly on their food unless you're using it um, for non-allergenic patients to meet sometimes like B vitamin requirements are fantastic. But the yeast that's naturally found in fermented products is totally safe and fine and actually helps reestablish normal microbial balance on the skin and in the GI tract. So the difference between yogurt and kefir are dozens of different colonies. Almost almost 50 different types of strains, really, yeah. if you think about it, right? And we talked about this before. Like, So people are throwing out, Dr. Becker ate it in front of you, uh, throwing out the clumps, which are like, where all the magic is, right? Yeah. So do not throw those out. Give, feed those to your dogs and cats, break them up. That's where all that good bacteria and those different strains are. There again, if your animal, dog or cat, has a dairy hypersensitivity or yourself, don't feed any dairy. Don't feed milk products. Yeah, try. you can try different variations. Like, like this one is coconut. You, you can get water. You can get you can get yeah. you can just get water based kefir. It doesn't last as long because it's not eating anything, right? Yeah. But you can. What I found out, like when I was doing the research on kefir grains, and I talked with the farmers, you could get milk based grains. You could get water based grains. Of course, if you put coconut and you compared it to let's say like a dairy base, you're going to see two different types of uh, bacteria. There'll be some the same, and there'll be some that are different. It could be that different that your dog or or cat or yourself or your family member is not responding to. Maybe try a different uh, exactly a different version of the grain. Jay says we're seeing more kitties with yeast. Jay, I am seeing more kitties with yeast too, but the vast majority of kitties that I see with yeast are eating high starch, not high fiber, high starch-based carb diets. And carbohydrates break down in starch breaks down into sugar, and sugar does feed yeast. So I'm not a fan of feeding 
high starch-based foods or treats. And that's what I have found. A lot of people feed amazing quality food to their cats, but then they give pounce or you know, friskies or some crappy treat. So you can undo, especially with a 12-pound house cat, you can undo all that amazing good work you are putting in the effort into the bowl by on the back end feeding pounce as as your treat. So that's something that if you've got yeasty kitties that you need to address treats. I have found that the same with humans. If you're on an anti-yeast diet or an anti-yeast food protocol as a woman and you finish off your meal with chocolate cake, you can undo that that amazing meal you just ate with a big old round of sugar because sugar does feed yeast. And Rick wants to know if you can be allergic to dairy, but fermentation removes sugar. So lactase is the enzyme that breaks down lactose. And once you ferment things, oftentimes the sugar's gone. Can animals that are sensitive, that are lactose sensitive, can they handle kefir? Yes, Rick, some animals can, but some animals can't. Same with humans. Some animals that are lactose tolerant do find on lactose-free dairy products and some don't. So another scooper said, I had a dog that I was giving goat milk kefir, I believe, and there was GERD or gastroesophageal reflex. That tells me that that's a no-go for your particular, that product is a no-go for your particular dog because there's something in that product. Uh, causing I can, yeah, I can, per, I can personally share that experience when I would give my dogs goat kefir, they were gassier. Farty. If yeah. I switch to coconut based, no problems. Yeah. yeah, no problem. So for Shuby, for yeah. instance, who's like 30 pounds, I like, honestly, you know, the recommendations on this is like one tablespoon for a human. So half a teaspoon for her is fine. There's been times they've given her a full tablespoon of, of good bacteria, right? To put it in their GI system. So the take home message for kefir, 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 is that kefir. yogurt, plain yogurt, fine, maybe four to six different strains of healthy, beneficial, good bacteria. If you are feeding them yogurt or dairy, goat-based kefir, or any other type of dairy-based kefir, and you're noticing farty, belchy, gassy, pinging repeatedly, they're probably lactose intolerant, in which case switch to a non-dairy-based kefir. April says one table, one tablespoon. I've been giving almost half a cup to my 26-pound dog. Well, well, we'll take a look at Maggie, yes. the 30-year-old yeah, Kelpie. It's true. Brian, and, and you are, ex- yeah. yeah the, the, one, the longest-lived dog in the yeah. world. When we interviewed Brian McLaren, he was given Maggie 50 pound dog, a cup a day, a cup of raw milk every single day. Can you imagine the diversity in that dog's stomach? That's not meaning that everybody could consume that much, but hey man, if it's working and it works for your pet, why not? Now, here's something that's really interesting that I had no idea was happening. One of the big questions and one of the trends that's kind of happening right now is the fact that because dog food is cheaper than cat food, pet parents are going out and buying dog food for their cats, or maybe even vice versa. But what kind of problems yeah. are people seeing here? Because this is this is a really, really interesting, interesting topic because I had no idea, first of all, that this was even happening. So this is not a new thing. In fact, growing up in Iowa, which I did, it was not uncommon for farmers in my area to put out dog food in the barn and everything, raccoons, possums, cats, and dogs all eat this 50 pounds of generic dog food. And inevitably, the same response from questioning that was, kitties appear to be fine. It's all the same thing. It's a very similar response that I get when I bring up to fresh food feeders about feeding an unbalanced diet to their dog or cat. Inevitably, the response I get from many even raw food companies is, 
animals look great to me, shiny coat, good poop, everything is good. And so it goes back to how do you identify a nutrient deficiency? Well, this study's pretty shocking because what this study says, which I had not heard of, is that one meal that's deficient in the amino acid arginine is enough to put cats at risk of arginine deficiency. And this is a little shocking. And even death, they have a footnote beside it. I have not gone to read the research, but this is the exact quote. Arginine deficiency is also potentially very dangerous. A single meal deficient in this nutrient can cause brain damage and even death. I believe that that's a, a, that's a pretty big statement. I have not, as I mentioned, I have not reviewed where they got that information from, but I think the premise holds that we don't realize that re- that feeding repeated meals, what exactly are we looking for when we create nutritional deficiencies? Most of us, even veterinarians, aren't trained to necessarily identify that. And certainly pet parents are. So they think, well, what's the big deal? So what if I have a meal or two that's arginine deficient? Well, in addition to arginine, there's taurine that cats have to have. Dogs can make some taurine, cats can't. So this this conclusion, I believe, is correct that you walked on a pretty dangerous path, a meal, okay. But if you have a kitty that really enjoys your dog food, you want to make sure that your dog food meets minimum requirements for cats. Now that brings me to some raw food companies in Canada that market their food as being fine for dog and cat. That's That puts all sorts of bells and whistles up in my brain as a veterinarian because the vast majority of pet food companies are not formulating their foods for both cats and dogs. Kitty food is much more expensive to formulate for those reasons. You have to include all of these preformed whole foods if you're using them or synthetics if you're adding them in. So most pet food companies have cat food and dog food, but there are these rare companies that have all-in-one food that I think you definitely want to call. If you are feeding a food that says fine for dogs and cats, you call and make sure that you know in your heart that those foods meet minimum nutrient requirements for cats because I don't buy it. Yeah, according to the Pet Food Manufacturers Association, 41 essential nutrients for cats that are required, dogs 37. So, you know, you fall short when you start doing that. Now, on the polar opposite, though, boy, is there a lot of dog parents that buy cat food for for their dogs because, of course, the dogs absolutely love love it. it. And this is interesting. The only downside about feeding cat food to dogs is it oftentimes can can cause diarrhea, low diarrhea. Especially with higher fat content, you don't have fat adapted dogs. And all of a sudden you get in a lot of trouble. I mean, it's it's really interesting though, how I had one person, I remember back in the day, tell me they were doing it. When I asked why, the reasoning was crazy to me. They said, because it kept the dog out of the litter box. Because dogs, of course, love cat poop. That That's by feeding cat point. food, yeah. it stopped the dogs from eating cat poop. And yep. I was like, that's crazy to me, yeah. right? But it was working for the pet owner. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and you know, kitties oftentimes, especially with poor quality cat foods, they pass out a lot of undigestible protein in their feces. And dogs totally are like, you know, you see dogs hanging out around litter boxes and they're like, dogs eat poo for a reason. And they eat cat poo because there's undigested protein from poor quality cat food left over in the feces. So dogs are just recycling. Gross, but true. If you have that happen in your house, think about feeding a more digestible cat food and your kitties will not pass out that protein. They'll actually utilize that protein. I was looking really at the good comment point. there by Trisha. Doesn't raw food have enough taurine for cats? Such a great question. Trisha, the original study, actually UC Davis was the veterinary school that did this study. They were looking at feeding whole ground rabbits to cats. In theory, 
rabbits are a cat's evolutionary diet. And what a great idea. UC Davis was actually looking at using whole ground prey, rabbits in this situation, for treating cat IBD. And what they found was, yes, indeed, whole ground rabbit fed to cats with IBD improved stool consistency, improved fecal scores. The cat's symptoms of IBD got better until at the 10, I think it was 10 month mark, cats started dropping dead of cardiomyopathy. This study alone is what got the pet food industry off on the wrong foot with raw food. They're like, holy cats, we just lost cats in the middle of a research study, no raw food for animals. They dropped dead from amino acid deficiency, creating cardiomyopathy, which was silent until the cats died. Heart failure, but it was quiet heart failure. So you don't see symptoms and they look good and they probably had perfect poo the day before they died of heart failure. What happens was those amino acids found in those frozen ground rabbits, the amino acid, fatty acid, and nutrient content diminished as those frozen prey animals over time lost nutrient viability. So the food became nutritionally deficient over time. That backs up or corroborates experiences I have had. Some raw food companies have done long-term stability studies. And what they found is at the three-month mark, many of the amino acids naturally found in whole prey are no longer there, which brings us to the conclusion that we have made. We really encourage people, whether you're making homemade diets with fresh meat, that you feed those within three months. If you're buying commercially available raw food diets, buy only a small enough quantity that you can feed within three months because nutrient, yeah. even frozen, nutrient degradation occurs in the freezer enough so that it can create nutritional deficiencies. And that has been proven with really painful studies. It didn't cut it. This is what drives me crazy about some raw food manufacturers. Yeah. Everybody has a different philosophy when it comes to like a best before date. There are some raw food manufacturers that are putting a two year shelf life mm -hmm. on their products, two years. The problem is it's a very slippery slope when you start to do that. Now, I don't see that it happens in a lot of other countries. I don't see it happening a lot in the U.S., but there might be manufacturers that are doing that, putting a two-year shelf life on there. According to the CFIA, the uh, Canadian Food Inspection Agency, and the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, just meat in general. We've talked about this a million times. Whether you're buying meat for your pets or whether you're buying meat for your family, just go look at online. It says, look, after three months ground beef starts to degradate. So when you grind the beef up, so if you've got a steak, you grind it up, you break all the fat cells up, it starts to oxidize. It's not saying that it's bad meat by any means, it's just not at its highest level of nutrition, right? Now, if you don't grind up the meat, yeah. now you're good up to six to seven months, yeah. right? So if that steak is steak not ground and you just bought ground. the steak, yeah. you got six to seven months. You know, Even if you're a retailer to the retailers out there, not only is rotation so critical when you're rotating through products for your consumers, meaning somebody's coming into the pet store, of course, you're putting all your frozen, you're the older stuff in the front, the other stuff in the back. But then the onus then falls on the distributor because distributors are very famous sometimes for sending you a brand new batch and then weeks later sending you a very old batch. And that can become very problematic. How long was that product sitting in the truck before it came from the manufacturer to the distributor and then from the distributor to make it to the pet store, from the pet store? to you, to your deep freeze by the time you feed it to your pet, what is actually left in the food? Always have to ask those questions. Hugely, hugely important. That also goes back to feeding food fast. As annoying as it is to buy small bags, the best advice we can give is if you're going to buy commercially available food, buy smaller bags and feed it up fast. Keep it in your fridge, airtight container, and feed it up as fast as, as, fast as you can.
I know some of the companies I have consulted for, they did nutrient testing on the prototype diet. And then they did three-month testing and six-month testing. It was at the three-month mark that the thiamine, vitamin B1, with this whole food diet, it was beautiful immediately after they produced the food. But three months later, thiamine was just below minimums. So what they realized is they've got to jack the level of thiamine up in the diet so that at the three month mark, there was still adequate thiamine in the food that if people found a, you know, a bag at the bottom of the freezer and they're like, hey, I'm gonna feed this, they wanted to make sure that diet at three months still had adequate thiamine. Not all raw food companies do that type of testing, but those that do provide really valuable insights for long-term storage and what happens as nutrient degrades. This brings me to ultra-processed food that also jacks up nutrients, but they do it with a premix, which means they're adding just a whole lot more of the bulk vitamin mineral mix into their dry foods. And sometimes in an attempt to meet minimum nutrient requirements, you can actually hyperfortify or supply too many nutrients on the under on the other end of the spectrum. So those of you that have read about vitamin D toxicosis in some recalls, some of the metals like iron and copper can be really high, really, really high in ultra processed dog and cat foods. Those long-term feeding of really high metals can lead to some organ dysfunction. So that also is my recommendation to rotate ultra processed foods as well. Well, and, and, so, and sometimes synthetics are important. Like take a look at raw food and vitamin E, for instance. Yeah. So there's a lot of manufacturers out there that will tell you their food's balanced. One of the quickest hacks that you can potentially look at is just look at the package and where do you, you know, where's the vitamin E coming from? So you make your batch, you test your vitamin E, everything looks great. You package it, you seal it, you put it in the freezers. Somebody goes in, they buy it, the pet parent takes it home. What they were finding was by the time the pet parent had gotten it home, the vitamin E was almost gone because yeah. of the freezing process. Yep. So they were forced to have to find some sort of natural supplement to put it into the frozen food. That's why a lot of raw foods, you'll flip around the back of the bag, it says vitamin E supplement on the back. Yep. It's just, it can't last, it right? Can't. And yep. if you're taking, and if, if raw food manufacturers are putting like a two-year shelf life on their food, yeah. man, there's absolutely nothing left there. That's why it's, you know, it's really important when you educate yourself as a pet parent, when you're looking at these products, listening, you know, that's why we try to bring different experts and manufacturers and people on so they could tell you their pains. Because when you hear their pains, it educates you. And then you now know what to look for when you're at the market. This also, in my opinion, is why it's so important to share your human foods, maybe not from the table, but still sharing your human fresh foods as you're eating them. So if you are eating raw, raw walnuts or almonds, share one with your dog. What a great resource of vitamin E. By you offering fresh add-ins on a daily basis, you are enhancing the nutrition in the bowl step-by-step. Step. All right. Switching topics. This particular study is just about people, but it talks about the fact that there's a substantial link between the amount of fiber people take in, their gut health, but also how balanced their brains are. And the reason I love this study is that so many people in North America are consuming the standard American diet, which is what we call the SAD diet. They are not getting adequate diversification of their gut microbiome because they're not eating a diversified number of plants because they aren't eating real whole life foods that contain adequate fiber. Fiber does a bunch of great things. It of course keeps you regular, but it nourishes, it's a prebiotic that nourishes your gut microbes. And without adequate fiber coming from fruit and vegetable sources, humans' gut microbes are not going to be balanced. You had a really interesting 
uh, study that I think we talked about briefly previously, that people that ate more than 30 plants a week had significantly more diversified microbiomes. Yeah, they, 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 the Hansa tribe, you know, one of, the, one of the tribes with the longest lived centenarians, 100-year-old lived people and above. Anytime you look at like the oldest people in the world, now scientists will go out and they'll look and I can't wait till they start doing this with dogs. There's always a diversity. There's always more, more good bacteria, more diversity in their gut than any other typical North American. Scientists were showing that the, the Hansa tribe consumes 600 different plants a year. Yes. 600 different plants a year. That means you should be eating more than 30 different vegetables a week. So we were talking about how hard that is. That is like so hard to do. Now here in this study, this new study that came out, link between dietary fiber and depression partially explained by gut brain interactions. So a new study involving more than 5,800 women of various ages, researchers specifically sought to investigate the relationship between dietary fiber intake and depression in women with menopause status. Now, this is really interesting, Dr. Becker, because there's been studies in the past to show that if your dietary fiber was right, it eliminated or it improved depression, right? Improved mood. Improved mood. And this is the same thing. The reason why I was so excited about this study, because I know eventually this is going to hold true for our pets, Absolutely. right? Especially now researchers are looking into the gut biome of, let's say, aggressive dogs, mm -hmm. and they can see a subset of bacteria overpopulated yeah. in the belly or something that's been reduced. There's still a body of people out there, and you know, we all talk about it, this whole group, all of us have been prey model at one point. Yeah. You know, and I know that the, you know, the theory of feeding fur and stuff like that is a prebiotic to, to build diversity. I don't think you would ever get diversity that way. I mean, I think today plants are so important and the diversity of plants in your your diet, your pet's diet, I don't think you know you're going crazy as far as adding plants into your diet. I know we've talked about this yeah. before. Yes, it's hard to gauge an exact number. I know yeah. you probably like around the twenty percent mark or less. I, I think it's really different. For it all, all depends dogs. on your dog. Yeah, yeah. It's you, totally some different. some animals thrive with more uh, fiber. With my, more fiber in their diet. Others maybe not so much, and you've got to cut it back a little bit. Yeah. But when you supply them with diversity, and even according to this study, when you supply them with diversity, you're it seeing brain chemistry, brain chemistry, yeah. gut brain access. One of the great expressions that I that I've heard was put more microbiomes in your body to build your microbiome yeah. put more microbiomes in your pets bodies to build more microbiome a carrot has a microbiome celery has a microbiome a piece of beef has a microbiome a piece of chicken has a they all have different microbiomes how do you build diversity well you've got to variation, moderation, and of course, balance, right? You've got to vary different things. I know it can be hard pending where you live, especially here, like in Nova Scotia up north. You're not going to go to the grocery store and you're not going to get the craziest selection you're in the not, entire world. But your frozen food sections has organic frozen veggies and we have to use them all winter for ourselves and for our dogs. Yeah. When you feed prey model and you feed something that has more fiber, more diverse, the stomach looks better. So what was happening was as they fed prey model and they fed kibble and the dogs had more diversity than a kibble. I know. And nobody wanted to talk about it. I it's, get it. It's right? totally, yeah. I get it. Again, it just is because it's in, fodder for the ultra processed food yeah, industry to because, say, don't feed raw food. Right, it's like, well, don't feed, right. don't feed <clears throat> raw food with no fiber. That's a bad idea. And there's a lot of companies out there that do that. Look at their labels on their, the, the philosophy of their labels. It'll be like, Maybe three meat ingredients. Let's let's just say beef, beef liver, and I don't know, beef kidney, let's say. 
whatever. Which is a great base. <clears throat> You'll see those three ingredients, right? You'll see bone chucked in there. Yeah. Always tripe because people will tell you that tripe gives you absolutely everything. We should do an episode Crazy. one day on tripe. Yeah. And it gives you all your probiotics, which is not true. And it gives you all your digestive enzymes. Not true. So it's just those three ingredients, yeah. right? And yeah. kelp. Bone, bone meat, kelp. organ, and kelp. My favorite is the kelp because yeah. people will be like, kelp will balance everything. everything. Or spirulina. But when I would interview manufacturers and they would tell me, I'd be like, how are you covering all of you know, your nutrients? So they'd be like, well, kelp. It's a micronutrient. Frightening. It has absolutely everything in it. So it's going to cover your dogs and cats with everything you need. And, and these are manufacturers telling you this? These are, these are pet food manufacturers. Now, here's the best part. One of the issues with kelp is, is that when it goes to, into the pet food trade, it's usually the byproduct of kelp. So it it's is- It's all the kelp that fails human. It's iodine deficient. Remember, they it were is. testing the kelp and it was iodine deficient. So the, the kelp itself was deficient in those micronutrients. Yeah. So then when you talk to the pet food manufacturer, you're like, hey, have you analyzed your kelp? And they're like, what are you talking about? Have yeah. I analyzed my kelp? That, this is my point yeah. of where it can get scary. So- being a Canadian, I usually just cut the conversation off rather than having like an argument. I'm just like, okay, you know, hey, maybe you should do a little bit of research in this division. Yeah. But that being said. So Des says, do kitties need veggies? On average, kitties need about, I mean, 12% veggies is what the published research shows. So I, this is not me and Karen Becker philosophy. So yes, all mammals need roughage. And it's really important we give them roughage in the form of low glycemic. And that's really important fruits and veggies. Low glycemic meaning we're not looking to jack up starch content. We're looking to jack up fiber because fiber is those non-digestible pieces of roughage that nourish the microbes, which are basically prebiotic fibers. The whole reason we give so much low glycemic variety is that prebiotic fiber is not only what makes great healthy poo, it's what research is showing alters brain chemistry for the better. To go back, the, the connection between the study and dogs was there's a multitude of studies now that are out that showing that if you have an aggressive dog, if you have a dog with stress, yeah. if you have a drug with anxiety at home, shifting the gut biome helps. Yep. All you got to do if you want to just search one study, or even if you can remember a product, go look at Purina's product. I'm not a fan, but Go look at the research behind it called Calming Care. It's only one bacteria that you kind of have to every day keep pouring in there. You're not getting the synergistic effect, but we'll talk about that in a second as well. But there was a 90% efficacy rate. They saw some sort of improvement in animals that were given a new set of gut bacteria to put yeah. in their gut yeah. to fix things, yeah. which is why adding microbiome to a microbiome can only help. Diversity can only help. That wraps up all of our studies. I, do, I did save one for last. I did say one for last. Now, today's show is a little bit different because traditionally when we start off, we always start off talking about, if you've noticed, birds. You usually yeah. will ask me, you know. How, how are the birds? What's happening here at the Rodney Bird Ranch? Yeah. I just so happened this week. Rodney got a bird bath. That was this week's addition. It's a heated <laughs> bird bath with a solar fountain, which we are showing you here. It's beautiful. Lovely. So that was the addition in the yard this week. The yeah. bird bath. Yeah. Stunning. So I needed to know. I needed to know what it was like to have a bird bath in Nova Scotia. So what you guys are seeing there on the right hand side. I tried to explain that there. birds typically yeah. don't bathe in the winter because of course it, it impinges thermoregulation. Yeah. But the, the little, out there anyway. That solar fountain that you see there, I got that for 10 bucks. I got the, the heated bird bath here in Nova Scotia. I'll keep you posted if it burns out. And I got the little... Now, the reason why There's I got the... a lot the, of love. The reason... Thank you. 
Thank a you. lot of love. Yes. I heard that you have the moving water to prevent bugs and the sounds. So when the birds hear yes. the fountain. Like cats. Yes. They're attracted to moving yes. water. Yes. When the birds yes. hear the fountain, they all they all come in. Now, it's been 24 hours. I will report zero birds. I'm looking at it right now. Not a single bird is visited. Don't hold your breath. I think it could be four months. You also before. told me that birds won't bathe in the in the, in the, in the minus weather. Yeah. I so it's it's just a drinking fountain at the moment. It, it's a beautiful drinking fountain. Thank you. As you all see it, there's my bird fountain. Now I will say this: I'm learning this too because we we talk about this all the time about dirty bird bird feeders. This is the last thing I'll bring up. This just came out, man. Yeah. This is really important. I didn't know this, right? So. I was always told like the dangers of bird feeders, right? A lot of people will say, you got to clean it. You got to clean it. It's really important that you're cleaning it, right? And right now there's an outbreak in British Columbia when it comes to salmonella and bird feeders. Like the the, the bird feeder on the right is my bird feeder right now. Like that's, it's, it's completely empty right now, but look at the mayhem, right? And yeah. what's happening is if you have a bird with salmonella, let's say, and the, the way that they all... Yep. sort of congeal together, yep. um, that bacteria travels very quickly with feeders because it kind of forces a whole bunch of flock of birds together. So if you're not- Population density. There's yeah. a lot of poo. Those of you that know birds know that birds can poo, especially while eating at, at twice a minute. Birds can sometimes go poo. So there's a lot of poo that could be contaminated in a short spot, in a small spot. But Rodney, there's a difference between cleaning your bird feeders and disinfecting your bird feeders. Right. Right. Absolutely. And so one of the things now that I'm trying to be better at, I got all these little brushes, so I wash them. It's difficult to wash them now. I've gone through three different hose heads trying to wash bird feeders in minus four weather. I'm terrified to bring them in the house because of bacteria. You yes. taught me that. Yes. Right? Yes. Dangerous to be washing bird feeders in your sink. It don't, Yes. I do not recommend that you wash any. If you're feeding wildlife of any type, I don't recommend that you disinfect your wildlife feeders, bowls, dishes, whatever in your human kitchen sink. I recommend that you use a drop sink, a garage sink, a mudroom sink, outside hose. If you do use your kitchen, you need to disinfect with bleach. I use a 10% bleach solution. You need to put a cup and a half of bleach in a gallon of water and spray it in your sink to make sure you are not infecting your sink salmonella wise with your own food or your own dishes yeah sharon saying uh, it's the little yeah. siskins in bc that are most affected yeah it, it'll seem to hit like a, a certain species or colony of birds and then it, yeah. kind of, it goes crazy so they're telling everyone now in british columbia to uh, bring your feeders down and bring them in the house first of all wash them this is the same thing when you're washing your pets bowls your dog or your cat's bowls you want to avoid the chemicals so you, you don't you know you know, you, we're going through all of this to avoid those type of chemical exposures with our pets. But on the, at the on the same token, remember the study that came out about bowls. People were washing their bowls with just like regular right. soap, and it was still there was MRSA. Yeah, there was MRSA in the bowls with people just washing with like heavy duty soaps. They yeah. still couldn't get rid of the MRSA. So what they ask you to do is wash it. But then once you've washed it, then you've got to disinfect it, like you said, with the yeah. The bleach with, solution. What's your favorite solution? So as I mentioned, um, I would do a cup and a half. Oh, of did bleach. you already say? It? Yeah. Yeah, a cup and a half of bleach. A cup and a half of bleach and a gallon of water. Now that's a disinfectant. Is that caustic to your own skin? Yes. Yeah. Do you need to after you apply your bleach, whether you're trying to kill parvovirus, pox virus, salmonella, E. coli, listeria, if you're trying to kill off viruses or bacteria, I wish I could say just use Dr. Bronner's Castile soap. It won't. So I use a product called Salugard, uh, Melaleuca, tea tree based cleaner. 
or you can use dilute bleach. There's also a hospital grade disinfecting colloidal silver solution that I can that I'll use. I'll post a link uh, in the in the comment. But after you use bleach, obviously you've got to rinse then really well. So after you disinfect, rinse. So they're asking people in British Columbia to um, take them down, wash them. Disinfect them and then hold off for two weeks so yeah. the flocks can disperse so they can uh, control the disease that's spreading out there. So anyways, we don't want to end it on that note. Thank God here in Nova Scotia, we don't have issues like that. I know the birds are going absolutely uh, bonkers out there. And yes, there it is. The addition of the backyard. The beautiful bird feeder. It is beautiful. Bird bath, not bird feeder, bird bath. I will keep you posted inside Scoopers. If a bird ever goes in there to drink water or bathe, there's 10 million birds, everyone's avoiding it, nobody likes it. Inside Scoopers, Dr. Karen Becker. That concludes today's episode of the Inside Scoop. So glad that each and every one of you joined us. We hope that you all have a warm and safe week. Happy Sunday to each and every one of you. We'll see you again next week. Bye, so long, guys. guys.